You're listening to audio from Cities Church. You can find more resources and learn about our ministry by visiting citieschurch.com. So in light of the Psalms that we've seen before leading up to Psalm 64, the situation that we see David in here is one that sounds familiar to us. David cries out to God for help against his enemies. God acts. And then we see the results. Psalm 64 includes the combination of human trouble, divine action, and then the reality that it creates. This is a common theme that we see in the Psalms. And so today, what I'd like for us to do, instead of digging into this Psalm like we normally do, I want us to slow down and think more about how we approach the Psalms as readers, how we approach the Psalms overall. Psalm 64 is the Psalm that we're looking at, but this morning I want us to be a little more deliberate in looking at how we look at the Psalms. Uh, I think the best analogy for what I want us to do this morning uh, comes from dancing, okay? I think we've used this analogy before. But most of the time, if you're dancing, you just want to dance, you know? You're just dancing. You're out there having a great time, kind of like Pastor Kevin last night um, at the wedding reception we were at. You should have seen this. He's incredible, this guy. Just having, you're just dancing. You're just having a blast. You're not, you know, you're just, you're having a good time. Sometimes though, depending on the kind of dance that it is, you need to slow down and you need to learn the steps and study the moves and it takes some practice, right, to know how to dance well. And so that's the way I want us to think about this sermon. I want us to approach this sermon like we're learning a dance, okay? We're three steps here, three steps that we're going to learn and these three steps are answering three questions. Question number one is what does the text say? It's easy, what's the text say? Step number two, Where does the text show us Jesus? Step three, how must I respond? Right, these are three steps. You can call them text, Jesus, life. Text, Jesus, life. Let's pray and then we'll get started. Um, Father in heaven, amen to what Marshall has prayed. We, we thank you for this moment and we thank you especially now for Jesus Christ. Thank you for Jesus who is our true prophet, priest and king. Thank you for Jesus that he is the head and savior of his church that he's the heir of all things, that he's the judge of the world. Thank you that before the foundation of the world, you gave us to him and you have made him to be our hope in life and death. You have given Jesus that glory. And this morning we recognize that. This morning we worship the Lord Jesus and we ask, show us his glory. By your spirit, show us the glory of your son. Amen. Amen. So the first question is, what does the text say? And we, we already saw that when we got started here. At the very beginning, I said there are three parts to the psalm that we see here in Psalm 64. There's human trouble, there's divine action, and there's, there's the reality, the result from that trouble and action. Look closer at verse one for a minute. I want you to track, this is one of those sermons where I want you to be looking at your Bibles. I want you to track what's going on here. Verses one and two 
David starts here by pleading with God for protection against his enemies. He, uh, he has here three verbs of petition. You see him, hear my voice, preserve my life, hide me. Three verbs there, pleading with God. In verses three to six, what David does is he goes into more detail describing who his enemies are, what his enemies are like. Then in verses seven and eight, it begins, but God. Two holy words there. This is where God acts. God acts on behalf of David. Then in verses 9 and 10, there's the result because of God's action. All mankind fears and the righteous rejoice. And and that's Psalm Psalm 64. Now, at one level, in this first step, we just want to read well. Right? We're not thinking about application. We're not thinking about what this passage means for us. We just want to read the psalm on its own terms. And the goal here is to slow down and understand what's being said. Again, it's pretty straightforward. David's in a jam. He's got enemies. He begs God to do something about his enemies. Verses 1 to 6. And this is where we can, if we're slowing down, we can make some observations here. The enemies that David describes in verses 2 to 6 are described as doing seven things. Let's try to count these here. They wet their tongues. They aim bitter words. They shoot their word arrows. They hold fast to their evil purpose. They talk about laying snares. They think that they can do it secretly, and they search out injustice. Now, what's interesting here is that in each of these things that describe the wicked, none of these descriptions advance beyond words. This is all about intent and speech. I asked the kids this week after dinner, Looking at the psalm, I said, hey, how would you guys, before we read it, I said, hey, how, how would you guys describe evildoers? When you think of the wicked, what are they like? And the, and the kids say, well, it's those who, who kill innocent people. And what I'm saying is, hey, it's people who steal stuff, okay? They said, it's, it's people, the wicked are those who hurt children, born children, preborn children. And all that's true. That's, that's what the kids said. Oh, they were right. All that's true. But now look at Psalm 64. In Psalm 64, the evildoers here are described only in terms of what they think and say. Isn't that interesting? Their evil is first what they devise in their minds and spew with their words. And David has asked God for help against them in verses 1 and 2. And then look what God does in verse 7. God responds in judgment. And this is fascinating that in God's response here, we see four words repeated in verses 7 and 8 that were first said in verses 3 and 4. See if you can track with me here. This is the four words, tongues, shooting, arrows, and suddenly, those four words. Okay, what's happening here is that God is about to turn the tables on the wicked. Verse three, verse three, the tongues of the evildoers is what perpetuates their evil. Then in verse eight, it's their tongues that lead to their own ruin. 
Verse four, the evildoers shoot word arrows at the blameless suddenly. Verse seven, God shoots his arrow at the evildoers, they're wounded suddenly. You see how, you see how those words are repeated there? Verses three and eight and then four and seven, I get this. When we're talking, when, when David here is talking about the evildoers, David says that the evildoers shoot arrows, plural, verse three. See that? Arrows, plural, verse three. But God shoots his arrow, singular, verse seven. So I asked the kids, why is it that the evildoers have a lot of arrows, but God only has one arrow? And Hannah said, oh dad, it's because God never needs more than one shot. That's right. That's right. See, what we're doing here is we're just reading the text, right? We're just slowing down. We're just we're reading the text. We're making observations. We're asking questions. What is the text saying? Verse 9, we, we see the result of God's action. God has given the wicked over to their own devices, to their own ruin. At the end of verse 8, all who see them wag their heads. It means they shake their heads. Everybody who sees the wicked and what comes of the wicked will shake their heads. Then in verse 9, David says that all mankind fears. God's action of justice has gotten everyone's attention. All mankind, meaning all peoples, which is important because all mankind here is setting up Psalm 66 and Psalm 67 we're going to see in the next two weeks. All mankind sees this and they, they talk about it. They ponder what God has done. And then in verse 10, David turns, he turns this into an exhortation. Beyond the seeing and the pondering what God has done, David ends the psalm by saying, let the righteous one rejoice in Yahweh and take refuge in him. Let the upright in heart exult. There are three words there, rejoicing, taking refuge, and then exulting. Now, rejoicing and exulting go together easily. But then this, this phrase of taking refuge is kind of sandwiched between these two. It's right in the middle of those, which means our coming to God, our, our taking refuge in God, our trust in God is all mixed together here with our joy and boasting in God. Which means that David is not talking about a different thing when he says to take refuge, but he's talking about a different aspect of the same thing. To have faith in God, to trust in God, to hide in God, to take refuge in God is to be happy in God. And we should be. We should be because that's what the text says. And that's Psalm 64. See what we're doing here? We're just... We're just reading. We're, we're asking questions. We're making observations. We're reading slow, taking our time. We want to see what the text means. And then, of course, we want to see what the text means for me. 
for my life? What do I do here? What impact does God intend for Psalm 64 to have on me? This is what we call application. This is really important when we read the Bible. How do I apply, this is the question, how do I apply Psalm 64 to my situation right now? It's a good question, but we need a caution here. We should be careful not to run to application too quickly. Sometimes we can read a biblical text and we can immediately find the theological truth and we can immediately jump to our own lives making application. And the problem with doing that is that sometimes we can do it, apply biblical truth without ever even thinking about Jesus. And if we don't think about Jesus, it means that we're not really understanding the meaning of the text because every text in the Bible is ultimately about Jesus. Now, we can of course still find wisdom in the text. We can can still find the words of scripture helpful, but unless we're thinking about Jesus, when we read the Bible, it means we are underselling the purpose of the Bible. Everything in the Bible ultimately is meant to show us the glory of Jesus and everything in the Old Testament at the very least is pointing to him. And so in order for us to make real application, in order for us to understand what the text really means for us, we have to see Jesus, okay? We gotta see him. So this is step number two. We've seen the text, now we're asking, what does this text, where does this text show me Jesus? Now, this is step two. I'm calling these steps, but I don't want you to think about this whole approach as being super mechanical. I don't want you to think that it's like we do this, and then, you know, we got to do this, and then we got to do, I don't, it, it's, it's, it's a dance, okay? So don't, don't get too caught up on the step thing, um, but we do want to learn the steps, and, and this is meant to, to help us in that. And the goal at this point, the goal in this step is to know how the text in front of us, how Psalm 64 this morning, how does it flow into who Jesus is and what he's done? That's what we wanna know. There's a good book about this that I recently read by a Bible scholar and professor named Nicholas Piotrowski. And he says, a good book, he says that the purpose of seeing Jesus in the text is to understand the climactic meaning of the text. The full climactic meaning, we've got to see Jesus. He says the Bible overall is Christological. Christological. Which means that the person and work of Jesus is the unifying rationale of the Bible. The gospel of Jesus is ultimately what brings coherency to the Bible in its entirety. Okay, so get this. If the text of scripture is flowing toward Jesus and his gospel, then the application of scripture, what it means for our lives, has to follow that same path and flow through Jesus and his gospel. Okay, so let me give you an image here. All right, I'm gonna try to do this with my hands. And so just imagine it like this. This is from the book. There's the Bible here. Okay, this is the biblical text right here, Bible. Jesus is right here in his gospel. 
and then you have our everyday lives, okay? Now, a lot of times if we're in a hurry, we might read the text and we might jump over here, kind of like that, you know? But what we should do, if we're, if we're, if we're reading in, a, in the full, deep way the Bible's meant to be read, we understand that every text of Scripture that we read in some way is flowing to Jesus and his gospel. So we, we read the text trying to discern how does it flow to Jesus and the gospel. And then when we make application to our lives, we're trying to discern how does, how does the application flow to me from the Bible through the gospel, right? We want to read the Bible in view of Jesus and what he's done. And when we do that, what happens with the application is that it takes all kinds of diverse forms. The gospel is like a, like a diamond, right? So this is what we want to do. The first thing, though, is we want to see how is this text, Psalm 64 this morning, how is this text flowing to, to the gospel? How is it getting to you. Where's Jesus in Psalm 64? Well, in some passages of Scripture, it's easy to see this. In others, it's, it's not always super obvious. And so when it's not obvious, we can get help if we expand our view a little bit and we think about the wider context. Now, at first, we want to start with the textual context. The textual context means we want to know how the words of this text fit together and within the words of this particular book. So I'm looking at Psalm 64 in light of, in light of the book of Psalms. And then we think about the canonical context. And that means we want to understand how these words in this book fit within the Bible as a whole. All right, so if we're starting here with Psalm 64 in light of the book of Psalms, when we read here in Psalm 64, 1, that David has enemies, there's some connections that we begin to make to the book of Psalms overall. Because going back to Psalm 2, we see that the kings of the earth and the powers of evil have set themselves against God's anointed. That's how the book of Psalms begins, Psalms 1 and 2. And we know that God's anointed, the word anointed means Messiah in Hebrew. And the word anointed in Greek is Christ. And so this anointed one, this king, is the Christ. Psalm 2 is about the Messiah, about the, about the Christ, who we know is the one who has been promised to come from David's lineage. And this is going back, we've talked about this, we can't over speak when it comes to the promise to David in 2 Samuel 7. It is a mountain peak in the storyline of scripture. God promised David in 2 Samuel 7 that he would have a son who would reign as king forever. That is the central promise that takes us into the book of Psalms. And so anytime in the book of Psalms, when we see the word king or anointed or son, we're supposed to think about that promise that God made to David about a son who would be king called the Messiah. Well, Psalm 2 tells us that this Messiah, king, son has enemies. He has those who are against him. And so in Psalm 64, Psalm of David, we see it's just Psalm 64 continues that theme. The son has enemies. But then see, if we step back and think canonically, this takes on even more meaning because we remember that the story of the son and his enemies actually goes back to Genesis chapter 3. 
After Adam and Eve sinned and brought the curse of sin on this world, God promised Adam and Eve that the future offspring of the woman would crush the serpent. There would be, God promised in Genesis 3.15, there would be a savior son to come. And God said, there's going to be enmity between Satan and his offspring and this Savior son. And those words in Genesis 3 start a theme in Scripture that we could call the drama of the son. And it really continues throughout the whole Old Testament from the birth of Noah, who was supposed to bring relief, to the birth of Isaac, which we were waiting for on the edge of our seats, to Jacob and all the conflict that he had with Esau, to the story of Joseph, who the brothers were turned against each other, to Pharaoh's attack on the firstborn sons of Israel, to the rise of Moses and God's claim on Israel, to the judges and the prophets, to the choosing of David, to God's promise to David, which then echoes throughout the whole Old Testament to the New Testament. There has always been in the story of scripture, this hope for a son that would come. And that son, that promised savior son, has always had enemies. Psalm 64, you see, falls in line with that. It's the same theme, which just, which just means this when we read. When we read Psalm 64 and we read about the enemies of David, we shouldn't make it instantly about our enemies. First, we should read it and we should think about the enemies of Jesus. David, the king, the anointed one, had enemies, and we know that Jesus, the king, the anointed one, had enemies too. So this is where we're reading, and we want to bring Jesus in view. Now, one thing that might help us do this when it, when it comes to seeing Jesus in the Psalms is, is we, can, we think about it this way. We normally will see Jesus in one of three ways when we read the Psalms. Either the Psalm is written to Jesus about Jesus, or the voice of the psalm is Jesus. Two, about, with. Sometimes it's mixed together in one psalm. But when we're reading, we're asking, in those categories, we're asking, is the psalmist here, is he, is he talking to Jesus? Is the psalmist here talking about Jesus? Or is the psalmist here himself the voice of Jesus that we read together with Jesus? See that? To, about, with. Well, in Psalm 64, when we read about these enemies, notice again how their evil is described as speech and intent. The evil, their evil is what they devise and what they say. What they devise and what they say. And so we should think, what about the enemies of Jesus? How are the enemies of Jesus described in the Gospels. Well, we see first the scribes and Pharisees, they question, they question Jesus. Then they, they spoke to provoke him, lying in wait for him to catch him. 
Luke eleven fifty three. They grumbled about him. They conspired against him, how they might destroy him, Luke 19, 47. They, they sought to lay hands on him, to put him to death, Luke 22, verse 2. They mocked him. They muttered about him. They vehemently accused him, Luke 23, 10. They railed against him. That, that's how the enemies of Jesus are described in the gospels leading up to the cross. And so do you think that Jesus would say of his enemies, do you think he would say of them, they wet their tongues like swords. They hold fast to their evil purposes. They talk, they talk of laying snares secretly. You could say that the enemies of Jesus searched out how to do injustice. And they were successful in their injustice. They were evil from their mind and heart. It came through in their words, and they accomplished what they set out to do. The enemies of the king in Psalm 64 fit the description of the enemies of Jesus. And if Jesus ever asked for help against those enemies, then it's his voice in Psalm 64 that we are reading with. And so we should ask, did God ever shoot his arrow at the enemies of Jesus? We, we, we know, we know that God did not stop the arrows of the enemy that were shot at Jesus because Jesus prayed Father, if you are willing, remove this cup. But he was not. The arrows were shot. Nails in his hands and thorns his head. The arrows landed. Jesus was dead. The enemies of Jesus killed him. They killed him. Except that in the cross of Christ, there was the truest turning of the tables. The devices of the enemy were turned against themselves. They brought upon themselves a ruin worse than what they conspired against Jesus. Because in the death of Jesus, there was the death of death. Because on the third day, suddenly, with one shot, Jesus came to life. 
death received its fatal wound in the breath of the resurrected Lord. And through his death, not only did he make many to be accounted righteous, bearing their iniquities, but he caused them to be more than conquerors because now the enemy of death doesn't destroy the hopes of God's people, but it actually ushers them into his presence of inseparable love and everlasting joy. And so when Jesus looked out before the cross, leading up to the cross, when Jesus looked out, when he saw that, even in the anguish of his soul, with great anguish and with great sorrow, Jesus was satisfied. And so for the joy that was set before him, he endured the cross. Jesus knew a joy deeper than the universe. Jesus has gone there and Jesus is bringing us with him. In Psalm 64, in response to God's action, we see here all mankind fears. But in the last verse, David the psalmist, and with him we hear the voice of Jesus. He looks out with an exhortation, which is really an invitation. So hear this as an invitation. Let, let the righteous one rejoice in Yahweh and take refuge in him. Let all the upright in heart exult. This is, an, this is a calling. Psalm 64 verse 10 is a calling from Jesus with Jesus. So this is now set number three. What's the text say? Where's Jesus? What, how do we respond? What must we do now? This is the question, how does application flow to me from this text through the gospel of Jesus? Right, that's what we're asking here. Now, it's important that when we think about ourselves here, that we, we shouldn't think about ourselves in isolation, okay? Don't, don't skip right away to thinking of yourself as an individual, but instead think like this. We should think, how should the universal church, like how should all Christians everywhere respond to Jesus in this text? Or second question after that, ask the question, how, how should our local church respond to this in light of our time and place? And then third, third we ask, how can I, as a member of my local church, as a part of this body, how can I be part of what God is doing in us through his word? See? In Psalm 64, it's straightforward. It's straightforward here. The, our response is to rejoice, verse 10. It's the exhortation here that David gives us in the very last verse. And we receive this exhortation as an invitation from Jesus to rejoice with Jesus. And we actually see this in the book of Hebrews, okay? Can I go to Hebrews for a minute? You guys, we, we go, going back to Hebrews chapter two, okay? In Hebrews chapter two, remember that Jesus is called, he's called the founder of our salvation. It means he's, a, he's our pioneer, he's our sanctifier. And Hebrews two says that Jesus is like us, he's like us. 
We are of the same with him. And the writer of Hebrews tells us in Hebrews 2.11, this is an amazing, amazing verse. He says that Jesus is not ashamed to call us his brothers and sisters. Then Hebrews chapter 2, verse 12, there's a quote here from Psalm 22. It's a quote of Jesus. This is what the, the, the writer of Hebrews is saying. This is what Jesus says. And Jesus is saying this to God the Father, Hebrews 2.12. He says, I will tell of your name to my brothers. In the midst of the congregation, I will sing your praise. That's Jesus speaking. Jesus is saying these words in Psalm 22. And do you see what he's doing here? Jesus is leading us in praise. He's a worship leader. He's leading us in praise. And this is amazing because it means that the praise that we give to God, the, the praise and the joy that we have in Jesus is praise and joy that we have with Jesus. It means that, that we should never hear him saying to us, praise me or rejoice in me. But instead, he's saying more than that. Instead, he's saying, join me in my joy. You get, the, you get the difference there? He's not, he's not just saying, praise me. Join me. Join me in my joy. Because remember, you know, he doesn't need our praise. God, look, God does not need our rejoicing. He doesn't need it. And that's the only reason. That's the reason that we have hope to actually rejoice in truth. The joy that Jesus calls us to is deeper than the universe. It's from before the foundations of the world. It's what's behind. The joy of Jesus is what's behind everything we see. This is the joy of God, the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit that was and is and is to come. And that's why, that is the only reason why we can have real joy no matter our circumstances. Because this joy, the joy that we're called to, is joy that is as deep as God himself. This joy is deeper than anything, which means this. It means the joy we're called to is deeper than our pain, our hurts. Because we have them, we all have them. We all have them. Losses. Pain hurts. And see, sometimes I think, and we're all, we all do this, sometimes I think we can get confused and we can think that um, our joy, we're just supposed to have a, enough joy to cover over the pain. Right? We just, we want to cover over the, maybe suppress the pain with our joy. We can think about it, the image I think, which is unhelpful, not good, is to think about it like a pie chart. Right? We got our pie chart. And we just say, man, as long as we got more joy in the pie than hurt, we're going to be okay. All right? It's not the way to think about it. We can't ignore the pain. We don't cover over the pain. Instead, we drill down through the pain. Drill down through the pain to what is most real to what is most true. What we wanna do is we wanna get down beneath the losses. We wanna get down beneath the cancer. 
Get down beneath the disappointment. Drill down beneath the broken relationships. And when we drill down to what is most true, to what is most real, there we find God who is full of joy, everlasting joy. It's a joy that Jesus invites us into. Would you, would you come to that joy? Don't you want that joy? Get down deep to the joy, man. That's what we want. Because that joy is deeper than the universe. It's deeper than the universe. There's a little song I've been singing with the kids. Look, I love this song. It's really simple. We've been singing it at home. The kids know it. Um, and they're going to want to kill me if I do this, okay? But it's a simple song, and it's Father's Day, all right? So indulge me here. I want to teach it to you because I've found singing, singing is powerful. And joy is deeper than anything in the universe. And so when we sing about joy, again, we're not, we're not covering anything up. We're getting down to the bottom of reality. So this is how the song goes. All right, it's really simple. It goes, you give me joy down deep in my soul, down deep in my soul, down deep in my soul. That's it. You give me joy down deep in my soul, down deep in my soul, down deep in my soul. You got to keep getting down there, see? You give me joy down deep in my soul, down deep in my soul, down deep in my soul. I think we should sing that forever forever. That's Psalm 64. That's what brings us to the table. Jesus invites us into that joy, joy deeper than the universe that can sit, land, be foundational to our souls. That's what we want. That's what we want. We're invited into this joy with Jesus, the joy of Jesus with Jesus because Jesus died for us on the cross. And we remember that death here at the table. We remember, we hear the invitation to his joy. We remember his death. The bread here represents the broken body of Jesus. The cup here represents the shed blood of Jesus. And if you are here this morning and you trust in the Lord Jesus, if you are united to Jesus Christ by faith, we invite you to eat and to drink with us. We'll serve the bread first. His body is the true bread.